is the J Cut, and this is the K Cut, a podcast for cinema fans. My name is James. I am a digital media creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul, and I am one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast. I'm Rachel. I write for Films Fatal, and I love world cinema and have just launched a column on Lost Movies. Please check out that column on Lost Movies and World Cinema, but that Lost Movies column, it's two articles in. It's brilliant already. Oh, thanks. Yeah. My name is Andreas. I uh, I run Films Fatal, and I also, you know, create content for it. And this is the K-Cut, as you all know. And um, I selected the topic for this week, and, you know, I'm just being an adult, just trying to like observe all of my things in my life. And it took me a while to think of this week's topic until I kind of sat down and said, life itself is kind of cinematic, but not in a way that it could be encapsulated in like one movie. It can be, but I feel like our actual lives, they're usually like split up into parts. So why don't we reassess our own lives without getting too, too into personal stuff if we don't need to. And four different movies each. So what we're going to do this episode is reevaluate ourselves with some of our favorite movies. Uh, But I just want to reiterate, these aren't things that we liked when we were kids necessarily. It's if we like them now, but we could like them as kids as well. But how do we view our portions of our lives now as the cinephiles that we presently are? So we're going to go through four chapters. We're going to go through youth. We're going to go through the teen years. We're going to go through young adults. So basically when you're fresh out of high school, you're 18 years old until you're like 25. You're trying to figure it all out. And then us now, because we're, we're past that stage and we're either in our 30s or close to it. So we're a little established. So let's start off with youth. And all three of us are going to go through each chapter at a time. So I want to find out, let's go with James. What is your film that you picked for your childhood or childhood in general willy wonka and the chocolate factory well that only makes sense why did you pick it uh, it's the ultimate kids movie that's pretty much it why do you think that is like what makes it the perfect kids movie and not necessarily that it's about kids but what speaks to kids from it I think it has to do with when all the kids are in the factory and you realize you're only limited by your imagination. Fair enough. And I mean, you have all those bright colors. You have like a really, really crazy guy in in Willy Wonka himself, which uh, Gene Wilder, rest in peace, is always fantastic to fantastic to follow as we go into this factory. You're not necessarily, you know, held by the hand. You're kind of just tossed in by a maniac. Um, You know, everything's candy. Everything's chocolate. I mean, it makes perfect sense. Well, there's so much that happens. You know, there's this idea of wonder and curiosity, but also you deal with the consequences of your actions. That's a big lesson that the kids learn. And even, you know, the part of the, you know, the ferry ride, they explored, you know, fear. (laughs) You mean the traumatic ferry ride? Yeah. There's just so many different emotions that go along with it. And yeah, it's just, it's just one of those, it's, it just kind of reminds you of like being a kid and just discovery and, you know, especially it's like, you know, a guy that's kind of looked to as not necessarily a personal hero, but just like this kind of like, I don't know, he's almost the stuff of legend. So it's like you're, you're meeting that urban legend in person. Yeah, fair enough. And I mean, it does match a lot of like childlike qualities, like, you know, the loud noises, the, the vibrant colors, but it's not annoying either. So I feel like one can look back at it a little fondly. I mean, again, uh, Rachel, you, you know, you, you discussed how tra- traumatizing that 
that fairy part is my family and I watched it for Christmas last year and they couldn't believe it. they were like, wait, I don't remember this. And it's like, how could you not, how could you forget this? It's like a chicken getting his head cut off. Like the, it always like, shows up in like the worst scenes in kids movies. <laughs> I know. So it's like, how on earth <laughs> could you forget this? And Gene Wilder's like screaming. Like if I remember, wasn't that scene unplanned? Like none of the cast knew, but Gene Wilder and that whole like thing was improvised. Yeah. That wouldn't surprise me. So was his tumble where he looked like he was about to fall. Like uh, Gene Wilder oh, yeah. just played everyone like a fiddle. And he was so appealing, but so menacing. Yeah. Well, either way, whether it's uh, misguided idols or, you know, traumatizing tunnels, there's a lot of great sugary stuff in between. Makes makes for a perfect pick. Rachel, what is your childhood pick? Well, mine didn't actually exist when I was a child. It came out later, 2014, and that is Boyhood, which I think to anybody who's seen the movie, it it was filmed over the course of about 12 years, starting in the early 2000s, and it matches my age and James's pretty much perfectly. We're almost exactly the same age as the older sister character. So watching it was like this strange journey back through your own childhood where you're like, oh yeah, I remember when everybody was complaining about George Bush. I remember when Soak Up the Sun was constantly on the radio. All this stuff. And it's a really, it's almost like flashbacking on your own life, even though it's different characters with a different life story. What I do love about it is that it could have been, let's be honest, a gargantuan mess, but through the power of fantastic editing and compilation, clearly, because you Lord knows how many hours of footage they actually had, um, through great editing, a great sense of direction. One thing that blows me away is that everything looks cohesive, like it's like uniform, like the camera quality from like 2000. I don't understand how it's as good as it was at the end of the film. Yeah. But also that Linklater has that, uh, which I always love the, you know, the fact that his name's Linklater and that's what he does with like the before trilogy and this, he just like <laughs> yeah. links later. It's like intentional. <laughs> um, but I do love how the overall theme was, you know, it's not about seizing the moment. It's the moment sees us. And like the older I get like you, Rachel, the more I'm like, Oh God, like that, that hurts. Like life's just zipping past us. And occasionally we get stabbed by a moment or two. And it's like, you know, these reminders of what these moments are. Like it's, it's a beautiful film. And at the same time, it. The older I get, the it's 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 almost hard to watch because it, it just knowing that life life ends and it just zips past us like it's it's a crazy miracle of a movie that. And when it came out, it was only a couple of years behind the real timeline, so it was almost like we had just experienced that. Yeah, it was like you were there for everything. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I remember seeing it. Uh, I think it was the Canadian premiere at um, Canada Music Week. I think they were trying to do like a film section as well. And I remember waiting months for like to tell telling people like, you got to see this, you know, because I saw months early. You have to see this. And I remember the rollout. It was just it's it's a fantastic film. And I, I think I think it lived up to its hype because it's what it's like seven years old now. And it's still amazing. Yeah. And it also does not feel three hours long, which is a great accomplishment. I, I don't know. I know there are people who don't like it, but I don't know anyone personally that I am, you know, associated with that hates this movie. And like, you know, my family, my friends, my partner, my girlfriend, we just don't always like none of us will see eye to eye on everything. All of us. But this is the one film where all of us were like, damn, that was that was wild. Like, what a movie. Yeah. So basically you're experiencing 
those years over again. And that's a great gift from Mr. Linklater. Yeah. Yeah, like the premiere of The Phantom Menace. That that brought me back. I was like, oh, I remember seeing that. Oh, the Harry Potter Midnight book releases. <laughs> I remember that too, yeah. But like, I love how the uh, the Phantom Menace and uh, you see uh, little Coltrane's character. I don't remember his name in the movie. Um, you know, he's discussing like, what if they make another Star Wars? And it's like, well, you wish a little too hard. Because <laughs> <You know, laughs> around the corner, well, then again, uh, you know, the first film of this, uh, the sequel trilogy was actually good. But then uh, it led to the rise of Skywalker, which let's move on. Uh, so um, my my youthful film is the 400 blows. Now, that is a good one. Yeah. When I first saw this, I identified so hard with that kid. I feel like which I did not see this as a kid, by the way. Like, no, Can not you even explain close. a bit of the context in the movie. Yes, absolutely. So, um this is uh, Francois Truffaut's big breakthrough film. And there's this child who partakes in a lot of like, you know, not great immoral activities. He's, he's a kid. He's a typical elementary school kid who loves like, you know, misbehaving or, or uh, playing hooky. He's a juvenile delinquent. Exactly. But he also gets blamed for stuff he doesn't do. And that, that I identified with a lot the first time I saw it. Look, as a kid, I did a lot of stuff I shouldn't have done, like, um, you know, getting into fights uh, when I was in high school, skipping class, when I was, you know, back in elementary school, just like playing in class and not paying attention. But I was, you better believe I was also blamed for stuff that I didn't do. And I remember like just feeling gutted, like, I still get into trouble for stuff I didn't do. So that feeling of just wanting to leave the world and just go somewhere where nobody can bother me. I totally identified with that in this film. Like, uh, like the quest to go, to go to the sea and escape society. Like who the hell knows what's going to happen afterwards? Well, you know, apparently there are like actual follow-up, projects by Truffaut which I haven't visited yet I don't know if I want to I'm sure they're fine but I love the way the 400 blows just ends where you just don't know but you all you're left with is that sensation which a lot of us as kids felt finally no one to tell us to stop doing what we're doing and I wasn't the worst kid but I did misbehave enough to identify with this film let's be honest yeah that's a really good film especially the the effect they did with that final frame is just perfect because it leaves you off like what happens because it's like you know it's it it's almost anticlimactic but it's perfect closure yeah because it's up in the air there's no structure there's literally no structure to that ending it's like well he got what he wanted there's no society there's no structure we don't know what's going to happen and that's precisely it it's intentional like it's it's brilliant yeah now our movies are gonna they're going to grow a little bit. They're going to go from 16 millimeter to, to 32. They're going to grow a little bit. They're going to get a little, a little bit of a perforation damage. You know, those awkward teen year stuff. We're going to get into our teen year films now. And I guess let's just go in the same order. So what films do we now associate with our teen years? And since it's a little bit closer to who we are now, they could be films that we liked as teenagers as well. So James, what is your teen years film? I decided to go with Jackass the movie. Well, I think, I think, unfortunately, I identify a little too hard with that too. But uh, please tell why. <laughs> because while well, the first one came out, I think that came out when I was like eleven. So it was like I wasn't quite a teenager yet. But I think number two came out when I was in high school. And 
just being a teenage boy, you're basically your whole existence is crude humor and shenanigans. Yep. So just seeing them do stupid pranks and stunts with each other, it's just brought me back to like, yeah, I remember doing kind of stupid, silly stuff just because we thought it was funny. Now, did you attempt not any of the stunts in the movie? Because I don't think we'd be talking to you if you did. But did you attempt to do stupid things as a result of this? Yes and no. Because there is one point, a high school group of friends, like one of them had a video camera. And we thought we might want to try to like emulate something similar to that movie and show. But no, it wasn't a direct result. I think just being a teenager back then, that was just, you know, how you were anyway. It was just they were older and were doing it first. Because I did, a buddy and I, we did. Like, I used to, like, when I would go to New York and they would sell those, like, bugs you can eat. I was like, yo, I'm going to I'm gonna be like those jackass guys. I'm going to, like, just, like, not care. And I would, I'd had, like, cockroaches, maggots, and crickets. Um, I remember we got to, like, the stunt stuff where I remember trying to, like, ride my bicycle through, like, some snow branch-ridden path or something. I don't quite remember. And my buddy set up like, you know, election signs because it was like that time of year. And I had to like crash through them. And that's basically where that ended. I was like, okay, yeah, this is stupid. I'm not feeling this anymore. Um, It was definitely a fad in my middle school, but nobody died or got arrested. So I guess that's progress. Okay. So they're they're, kind of just, you know, they're they're not full on jackasses. But as a lady, because this this film is full of so much like macho idiocy. Did this speak to you at all, Jackass? Well, don't forget, there has always been a lot of pressure for women to be, or girls, to be one of the guys. So I think you were considered kind of cool if you were a girl who liked it. I was never considered cool, but, you know. And I definitely remember doing a couple of pranks, like, mostly in small groups of friends. We did one. I had to walk around. They poured a bottle of Sprite out on my head, and I walked around with Sprite hair all day. Oh, Oh, yeah. wow that that must be so gross like the syrup and like you know like at first yeah. it's like all bubbly but then it's just like thick wet Ugh. i do not recommend it <laughs> <laughs> well luckily i mean i'm balding james i mean uh, you also short hair so i think we're i think we're fine i think we'll be okay <laughs> um, yeah it's funny because in retrospect the show in those movies were actually fairly groundbreaking like that kind of changed the face of pop culture especially like you see all the things now with like people doing stuff on all the social media platforms like the internet challenges and stuff like that it's like that's where that comes from i mean maybe not a direct influence but it's like they were the ones doing stupid stuff and it was just like they just had a big platform to do it and now you know you see you know people doing really stupid stuff at times lethal and dangerous yeah i feel like uh it's weird skateboard culture gestated a lot of different things, including this. Cause that's where they all met through skateboarding culture. It was like one of those magazines, all the jackass. Yeah, it was uh well, half of them were actually worked with the big brother magazine, which was a fairly popular skate mag way yeah. back in the nineties. And then it was Bam Margera and his friends were just across the way in Philadelphia, just doing their own thing. Like Bam was obviously a professional skateboarder and a lot of them skateboarded. And, uh, yeah, because the way the show came together was um, Big Brother had released like VHS tapes of just skate videos and shenanigans. And then Bam was doing that with his friends. So, you know, Steve or Johnny Knoxville and Jeff Tremaine, you know, got a hold of Bam and they just were like, hey, we should, we could turn this into a TV show. And then the rest is history. Oh, and behold. But yeah, like that. 
you know, some forms of pop punk and emo, that sort of stuff, or just hardcore punk as well. Uh, some of the clothes. I feel like a lot of stuff that skateboard culture kind of encouraged has lasted longer than skateboard culture itself, which is kind of interesting. Um, I, I don't know. I guess it's just one of those things. Uh, a heavy part of a lot of our teen years. Um, I'm guessing that's a lot of part of your teen years, Rachel. What was your teenage film? My teenage film was The Dark Knight, simply because you could not escape it for a period of about two years. Now, since I know that was a part of your teen years in terms of like how big it was, but like, does watching it now, does that also kind of speak to you on a teenage level? Maybe something you identify with, you know, thematically or just aesthetically? No, it's more about the cultural moment it took place in. Um, it was on in the background every high school party when nobody was really paying attention. They showed it at the school events and things like that when they didn't want to have to deal with us. And when I think about it, it was this huge supernova of a movie. And it, it was far more than just popular, I think. It was kind of groundbreaking. And it was really the beginning of a lot of things. It was a whole new... Um, it was it was at the very beginning of the superhero trend. I think it and Iron Man kind of accounted for that. Then it was a whole mm -hmm. new step for Christopher Nolan. So people really got to into his career a bit more, I think. And it started at the Oscars, the expansion of movie cat of Best Picture because everybody complained when it didn't get nominated. Right. So when I think about it now, you know, it came out the year that I graduated. And so to me, it sort of marks a division between one era and another in many different ways. It's interesting as well, because you said when it came out, like you had graduated, we were used to some other types of comic book films growing up, like, you know, this, the Spider-Man stuff by Sam Raimi, um, you know, the not so great Fantastic Four stuff, uh, and even some things like Sin City, which are very different, let's be honest, um, like, you know, good in their own way, but still like very different than what we have now, I mean. And that marked almost like the adult comic book, even though there was like no blood, there's no swearing. It was like the adult mature comic book movie that, mm -hmm. yeah, as you said, ushered us into adulthood. It's, it's pretty fascinating. It was the comic book movie you could take seriously, I think, which had not really been the case in many people's eyes before. Right. Yeah, it's interesting because I always kind of look at it like when Christopher Nolan did Batman Begins, everyone was like, oh, that's how you do a comic book movie because it was just so different from everything else because I think it was like one of the first times it actually took itself seriously. And also just Christopher Nolan's style just worked for the comic book aesthetic. Just like, you know, it, it, just everything. It's like, you know, it's like there's always a dash in the war and then just, you know, his character development and just it's in the characters and the atmosphere in general because it's like, you know, you see a lot of Christopher Nolan movies. It's always dudes in suits everywhere. For some and reason, bad suits. <laughs> yeah, and it just like you know, there's one per. Well, yeah, Batman wears a regular suit by day, and then the bat suit by night. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think that was where we got to see you know Christopher Nolan. Like, oh, not only is he the art house guy, but he can literally just you know annihilate the blockbuster market. I think I've seen it twenty times, and only once or twice was it on purpose. Oh wow. <laughs> But, but do, do you actually like it then? Or? No, I do like it. I respect it. I just think it's funny that it just got so ridiculously popular. I mean, looking back now, outside of Watchmen, and I have to emphasize the uh, 
the Damon Lindelof Watchmen, the miniseries, outside of that and maybe one or two other examples, including the Dark Knight, like those are like the like the face of like the best comic book related adaptations I've ever seen. And yeah, I, th- I think it still holds up. Absolutely. I don't know if the rest of this of the trilogy does, but that one in particular, I think it's it's still one of the great. In fact, it might be the greatest one. So I, I think the hype is real. It, it's still strong. Um, Batman's still standing. Bane or no Bane. I went with something a little bit different with my high school movie. And it actually was one that I loved in high school. I don't know if I love it nearly as much now. I would say that watching too many movies and getting too familiar with filmmaking kind of killed a little bit of it for me, but it'll always have a place in my heart and heavily identifiable. That's uh, Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. So as a teenager, that was like my favorite, favorite, favorite movie to the point that I was like drowning in tears every single time I watched it. As a teenager, I got bullied kind of profusely in elementary school. So as a result, I just kind of was reluctant to even attempt to make friends. I kind of just sat by myself, didn't even really make an effort. And seeing something like that, when you're like a hopeless romantic teenager, you feel like you're all alone. That movie just spoke volumes to me where it's like, I feel like this guy. Now, I wasn't wearing the makeup, but I was heavily into like uh, extreme heavy metal, like death metal, black metal. And, um, you know, I didn't wear the makeup, but I, I, I had like the pentagram necklaces and the spikes and stuff on. And I, I kind of felt like that where it's like, I look weird. I, I like, but this is who I am. It's not a phase mom. You know, we all had that. <laughs> and uh, um, th- that film was just like, it made me feel like there's a place for everybody, even though in the film, of course, a lot goes against, uh, you know, Sir Edward Scissorhands, unfortunately, but something about it just felt like beautiful and like at the time i used to love snow i hate it now but like having this this fable where it's like this is where the snow comes from and you hear like this this elderly lady telling her grandchild this is where the snow comes from and you're actually not even entirely sure if it's like a real story or not because it ends up being like winona rider as the grandmother so you don't actually ever know there's a lot of beautiful mystery aesthetic uh quirk to it um certainly a lot of quirkiness I don't know. It still has a place in my heart. It's far from perfect, but it, I still love it. I love it. It's definitely, it has its place as a classic because, you know, I, I think the problem is it's like it kind of dates itself with how it approaches the theme. But I like it mainly because I think that's where Tim Burton really found his voice. Mm-hmm. And he also, it almost does the thing that kind of happens in like, Guillermo del Toro movies like Guillermo del Toro movies often deal with like childhood trauma yeah uh, with, the, with the exception of the shape of water and this kind of does that to an extent you know he definitely has a knack for having these movies that you know deal with you know outcasts in a similar manner where it's like you know they don't quite fit the mold but you know they find a way to almost integrate with the people that you know kind of don't make sense to be around yeah like I Ed almost Wood picked Pan's Labyrinth Exactly. I almost picked Pan's Labyrinth, even though I really thought about it. And it's like, I don't really identify with this film because, you know, it's like the Spanish Civil War and all this like terrible stuff. It was more like the outcast child with the overactive imagination to like try and cope with traumatizing things like that part of it. But then I felt like this would be more applicable. But yeah, absolutely. I agree with both of you. Yeah, it's it's a movie I've long enjoyed uh, for many of the same reasons that you guys have. 
to me also it was a, a huge factor in getting both Depp and Winona into the star stratosphere. And I think we have a lot to thank that movie for. Yes, we do. And again, it's, it's far from perfect, but like that, that Danny Elfman score, I think it's like my personal favorite of his. Oh, it's so good. Beautiful. Um, again, it's not perfect, but I'll be damned. Whenever it's on TV, I'm like, yeah, I'm watching it. <laughs> Did you guys hear about movie? how he got cast in that movie? Uh, Tim Burton was hanging out with John Waters and John Waters was showing him dailies from Crybaby. Oh, oh my God. That's what led to him being cast in Edward Scissorhands. So like everything else in life, we have John Waters to thank. Exactly. A sensible attitude. <laughs> a sensible attitude for a man who makes very, very uh, uh, like not sensible movies sometimes. Uh, let's be honest. So, okay. Our adult years are not going to be starting off with something like Pink Flamingos. No, we're going to pick something else. I'm pretty sure. So now our films have, have become, you know, bigger than than 32 millimeter. There they're are like 70 now. You know, the, the perforations have been fixed. You know, everything's looking good, but they don't know where they go because no movie theater is going to play them. Where they're that young adult movie that just doesn't fit anywhere and it's trying its best to make its way into society. So what are our films that speak about us as young adults? James, what's yours? Well, for this one, I decided to go with a Richard Linklater movie and that would be Slacker. Right on. The Return of Linklater. <laughs> he linked later. <laughs> so... I think what resonates with young adulthood with this movie is just the fact of just all the casts and characters in this movie. You just explore the lives of people who are under 30 and just kind of how they live life and the conversations they have and the ideologies they have. And it kind of made me think, you know, I came across a lot of different personalities in my young adult years because it's, you know, you're kind of a more out there. You know, whether whether you're in college or, you know, having a more serious job than a high school job, you just come across so many different people and, you know, you it's almost breaking you out of your comfort zone like that movie doesn't necessarily break you out of a comfort zone. But it's like you see so many different things happening at once with different people. It just kind of makes you think, yeah, the, the young adult years are about like, you know, getting to know different personalities and ideologies and just see how you relate to each other. Yeah, it's almost like in high school, we're purposely trying to find all these cliques find our own thing. And then as adults, we're like, well, crap, we're all lost. Let's just reconvene and figure this out. Exactly. Uh, Rachel, have you seen Slacker? I have not, but I'm starting to wonder if there's a link later movie for every stage of life. I think there is. Uh, precisely. Precisely. <laughs> so, I mean, the guy made, made School of Rock and, you know, a scanner darkly. Like, he really is, like, for all ages, all walks of life. He really does it all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Rachel, what is your young adult film? Okay, well, mine is Holiday. I've mentioned a couple of times on this podcast that it's my favorite movie, but I don't think I've ever really gone into detail why. So the premise of the movie is Cary Grant is engaged to Doris Nolan, and they met 10 days ago, which they always seem to do in the movies. And she wants him, he's been working on Wall Street, and he's built his whole life from the ground up. And she wants him to keep working, make more money, build the perfect home, perfect life, everything like that. Um, and she's obscenely wealthy, by the way. So basically, she just wants him to be more of the 0.001%. That's too many points. Anyway. Um, <laughs> Not for back then. <laughs> um, so then her sister, who is Catherine Hepburn, is... Not that way inclined. She's slightly more bohemian, and it turns out she aligns pretty well with Grant. So they start to un understand each other. You can kind of guess where the movie's going. 
to me, that was the movie. I was this small town kid who really wanted to break out and see a new world and discover all kinds of new things and learn everything there is to learn. And Hepburn and Grant's characters are very, very much like that. And so I found that this was the movie that really made me decide which way I wanted to live my life. I wanted to be unconventional, I wanted to go on adventures, and I wanted to keep having a holiday out of life. And so far it mostly succeeded, but it's really this movie's fault that I have gone on so many crazy adventures through my 20s. But I like that it was so influential in how you wanted to live your life. Like, not even just that... um that you could identify with it. You were like, no, I want to identify with it. And so far it sounds like you've done a really good job, especially with like, you know, you're traveling a lot yeah. of, uh, all the ways that you like, you know, just keep learning new things. Like you've certainly just been like living your life as much as possible. Yeah. Um, I remember showing it to some friends a couple of days before I was going to move abroad, basically on a whim with no job. And I, I was pretty nervous, but Watching this movie, it made it feel like it was all going to be okay because I was choosing my authentic direction. And that, to me, is what Holiday is all about. So if you haven't seen it, anyone out there, I'd recommend it. Don't confuse it with Kate Winslet's The Holiday for the Love of God. <laughs> well, that is... Uh, I think that's an excellent choice. It sounds like we're all doing kind of different things uh, with our young adult years. So James, with you and Slacker, it's like, okay... Uh, we're all trying to find our place in the world with Rachel and your film. It's like, no, this is what I want to do. For me, it's more like, why does this keep happening? I picked Damien Chazelle's Whiplash for my young adult years. 2014 strikes again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, it was it was a damn good year for film. Yeah, I, I, I can't profess to say that I'm a professional drummer. That would be fantastic. But uh, what I can say is that, and I feel like a lot of people can identify with this, in our day and age where jobs are kind of like something you do for a couple of years and then you move on to the next one and move on to the next one, you're not really ever like set for life doing something anymore unless you're lucky. Often I come across like educators, you know, bosses, managers who have this like authoritative attitude and are, you know, they're trying to do this for the betterment of yourself or the betterment of the company, but you don't ever, ever feel like you're succeeding so I remember when I was watching this, I was like, oh, man, I really feel like this kid, this poor kid, where it's like nothing you do is ever good enough. Well, I know that's not true. That's not true at all. But when you're a young adult and you're trying to find your place after a university and you're like kind of like scrounging around for jobs and you do everything from like ice cream scooping to working on fairways and on a golf course to uh, working in warehouses – which sound like all over the place, but I did all of those jobs. Those those are actually all a part of my resume. And then some. I've done a million things. So I heavily identified with that, where it's like, where do I belong? Where am I good enough? But lo and behold, I feel like every little piece has, uh, has become a part of who I am. But, you know, when you're that age and you're still trying to float above water, you're like, I'm suffocating here. What am I supposed to do? Yeah, I can I can understand taking the movie that way. Mostly I got caught up in J.K. Simmons' highly agitated voice, but yeah. <laughs> Which for the sake of everyone's eardrums, I shall not attempt. So <laughs> yeah, now our films are being projected in IMAX, like super wide, crazy aspect ratio. They're seen by all, they're hopefully successful, but they're trying their dandest. But they're ambitious, they're bold, they're proud of themselves. Our movies are now like confirmed mature adults and they're going out into the world and they're doing their thing. So 
let's let's view ourselves now, hopefully with some optimism, please, because we can all use it. James, what is your current adulthood film? The Big Short. Okay. I have a bad feeling about this. I said some optimism. Please explain why. <laughs> it's not just the current climate in the States is is very telling that there could potentially be another crash. Yes. It has more to do with what's been happening with the meme market and the stock world. Okay. Because it's almost the inverse of what happened in that movie. But it's also inspired this whole thing of everyone's trying to think, oh, how can I be in on something that no one's going to expect to make me rich? Because you got to think, all those guys, you know, Michael Burry, I think his name was, you know, the main character that Christian Bale plays, when he saw the information and was like, oh, this is a bubble that's going to burst. And then he went around buying all the shorts. Every, you know, the banks thought he was crazy, but, you know, you know, and all the characters that catch wind of it and are like, oh, let's do the same thing. This seems like good. It's just really interesting how the, you know, you almost can never tell what's going to happen. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, aside from him kind of predicting it, it's like, you, you no one ever thought it was going to go that way. And I think we're seeing that now. But, you know, the tables are kind of turned because there's this whole dichotomy of, like, the old way versus the new way. And they're clashing. But, you know, there's also this middle space because of, you know, all the unemployment and, you know, people refusing to go back to work. So it's just very kind of, you know, it, it makes me think of this where it's like, you know, we weren't quite in a in a similar state back then when that crash happened, but it just kind of reminds me like, oh, this definitely happens every so often. And just to kind of, you know, me, me being an investor in Dogecoin, it's like, I feel like I'm involved on the side that's winning for once. And we are seeing all sorts of ways that people are trying to like, you know, sidestep the traditional system because, you know, they're the... You know, they didn't sidestep the traditional system. They took advantage of it. Now we saw how they did that. We're doing it our own way. Yeah, like preventative measures as opposed to uh, measures of greed. Yeah, we're, we're trying to take out the greed this time. Absolutely. Well, see, okay, that's a little bit more optimistic than I was anticipating. Plus, you brought up the whole meme side of things. And I mean, you know, with uh, with uh, the eclectic direction that that film has with all of like the pop culture pop ups and the, all of its antics, it's. It's a fantastic example of that type of movie, like The Wolf of Wall Streets and whatnot, where it's like the self-aware satire that's sadly very real. Um, no, it's a terrific film. Yeah, it exposed kind of the joke that those systems are, but we played the game this time around. So it's like, oh, you it really is a joke, and we're making it a joke. But at the same time, it's very coordinated and professional. For sure. Now, Rachel, I have a feeling that your movie's not going to be uh, anything quite like this. Because if it was, and mine isn't, then uh, that's not going to be too good. I'm going to feel like I'm I'm like not in on this. So, <laughs> uh, what is your um, your mature ad- adult movie? This movie's not terribly mature, but to me, it's really emblematic of the year that I think all of us went through a massive change, and that's 2020. And the movie is Eurovision. So. First of all, Netflix movie. So that's the year that we all shrank down to the small screen. Second, I was going through some stuff after having left Europe, and I was really not happy, not doing well. And this incredible movie of just people going after their dreams and working creatively and building something out of their own creativity, even though they were, quite frankly, pretty terrible most of the time. 
it we were all trapped in our homes for a year and we were all given a chance to reinvent ourselves and grow into who we were and i think that this movie a is funny and amazing comfort food B was about an event that was cancelled. I think it literally premiered the same weekend that the cancelled event happened, so it was a symbol of how we all shrank our lives down. And C, it had a happy ending, so it made us feel that maybe we'd come out of all this better off and maybe have grown. So that's why Eurovision is my favourite movie of 2020, even though it was by no means the best. (laughs) Well, yeah, you're allowed to like something for your own reasons, and I feel like your connection to Europe is a certainly a, a certainly a big plus with that. But it, that's a, that's a very interesting selection because it's uh, less about you yourself, strictly yourself as an adult, but like just all of us kind of trying to trying to get through this together. Almost, I think it all forced us to change, and to me. It's not so much the plot of the movie or anything like that. It's just always going to be an emblem of that year. Yeah, for sure. I hear you. That's a strong choice, even though, as you said, it's not perhaps a mature film. But at the same time, for that type of like silly comedy film, it, it kind of is mature at times, especially when it takes itself a little bit more seriously than some of these stupid comedies would. It's definitely got the best music. <laughs> <laughs> of any film of that nature? Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. You know, it rivals uh, The Wedding Singer, let's say. But like in terms of original music, yes, <laughs> that, that, that goes without saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, yeah my, my film's not nearly as silly as either of yours. Um, in fact, it's like super, super serious. It's uh, Cure Stommy's Certified Copy. Have either of you seen it? No. No. How do I say enough about this movie without spoiling. I'll try my best. So certified copy are either of you familiar with uh, Kirstami in general and like what he kind of like what his shtick is as a director. Yes. Nope. Uh, well, for James, uh, I'll, I'll reiterate uh, since uh, Rachel sounds like you're familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, he loves blending reality with, with, uh, with fiction. So something like close up, which is one of the best documentaries I've ever seen he reenacts something that actually happened with the people that did them acting as themselves, for instance. And he does it all the time. Like, yeah, it kind of bends the term documentary a bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And when I was doing like my, all of my, um, my research, it's like, I don't know what to consider some of these films. Are they docs? Are they features? I have no idea. Like, uh, features as in fictional films, of course, like acted and whatnot. But, um, this film certified copy is, much more straightforward as like uh like an actual like narrative except he, once again he 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 pushes his boundaries and becomes like a postmodern voice for the ages it's a brilliant film that i don't want to spoil too much but uh it's tough without spoiling but i'll try my best basically you see an entire lifetime within a day and like the more you slowly realize what this lifetime is and how these partners interact with one another and how their feelings for one another evolve or degrade or build themselves back up again. Um, It just reminds me so much of like in the way I discussed uh, boyhood when you brought it up, uh, Rachel, Um, how much life just zips past us and 
every time I see certified copy, even though that's not like necessarily the focal point of the film, like the fact that life can just feel like a day that just zips past you. I feel like so many relationships that I've had, so many people that I've known, and especially during this pandemic, and just not got a chance to see. And then you see them and they're like completely different. Life just doesn't stop. I'm one of those people where I don't view that as a positive thing. Like, oh, you know, we're all getting older. To me, that's a sad thing. Like, I wish it would just kind of go on forever and we'd all just be like, okay. And no, you do your own thing. People drift off. They do their own thing and it just zips past you. And even when you share your life, and this is where certified copy comes in. Even when you share your life with somebody, family, a loved one, a good friend, you know it's zipping past and you can feel yourself age and you can feel them age. And it's just this indescribable feeling more so on the sad side where it's like, where's it all going? What's going on? Like we've done so much, but at the same time, it's just going. And that type of thing, it just saddens me so much. So if I wasn't going to pick certified copy, I would have gone with a similar type of film, the red turtle where it's like, the same kind of idea, life just zipping past you. And yeah, sorry to end on such a somber note, but uh, do either of you share these sentiments or do you think I'm insane? No, I completely understand. I get it. How about we end off on some more positive stuff? We're going to not look at the past or the future. We're going to look at the now and we're going to send all of you off outside of our 12 other films Let's make it an even 15, even though that's an odd number. Let's make our weekly recommendations and send everyone off. So, Well, actually, I know how we could turn it into 19. Okay. So, first of all, we can be found on our social media, uh, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And if you would rate, review, follow, all of those things on whichever media you listen to, we would be very appreciative. Above that... If you want to join in on our cinematic smorgasbord, we are watching Seconds, starring Rock Hudson collectively this month. I recommended Hexon to James. Uh, Andreas recommended The Last Emperor to me, and I'm really sorry, but I'm blanking on what James recommended to Andreas. The Poor and Hungry was what I recommended on JS. Footnote on that, you will not be able to find it on streaming services. It was only it was never distributed widely, and it was only released once when the director put it up for free. So you'll have to find it somewhere. Okay. Sounds good. We're going to have to somehow make it an even 20, uh, but let's do our weekly recommendations. Thank you for, for reminding us of our, our, of our smorgasbord. Some great stuff coming your way. Let's not break tradition here and let's go the same order. James, what is your weekly recommendation? I'm going to go with uh, Barton Fink by the Coen Brothers. Excellent. Uh, I hope you don't identify with that movie outside of maybe the, uh, the alienation of procrastination. <laughs> Yeah, that's about it. I don't know, it's great. Great John Turturro performance. It was a Palme d'Or winner and also won three awards at that award ceremony, causing them to instate the rule that you're only allowed to win two awards. Well. Killjoy. Uh, I know. Uh, it deserved it. It's Barton Fink. It's an amazing film. It's like that episode of SpongeBob where he's got to write that essay, but on steroids. Uh, Rachel, what is your weekly recommendation? Okay, this one might take you back to high school, depending on whether you're on the debate team or the school trivia team or anything like that. And that is a filmed play on Amazon Prime, at least in Canada, called What the Constitution Means to Me. And yes, this is the US Constitution. I am not American, so it does not affect my daily life the way some of our viewers it might, and at least one of our podcasters. But it is a very funny, very poignant, and very, very informative 
humorous take on the U.S. Constitution and what it has meant to various people over the years. I'm going to have to check that out since uh, nobody has said that this episode yet. uh, That one I will have to check out. So um, with mine, I'm going to go with, I don't think I brought this up before. It's my, um, by far, my favorite Paul Schrader film. And I don't even think it's a contest at this point. And I want to specify him as a filmmaker. Uh, Mishima, A Life in Four Chapters. It is um, based on the the activist author uh, Yukio Mishima and various stages of his life, which uh, I guess this was completely unplanned uh, just off the top of my head, but I guess it plays into this episode. I just didn't even consider it. Um, One of the greatest scores by all time by Philip Glass, just amazing, but like a colorful, hard-hitting, beautiful, ambitious film by Paul Schrader. I feel like he does a lot of like weird experiments but this is the one time where it's like oh yeah everything lined up this is like his magnum opus as a filmmaker so that leaves us with 19 um how about you listeners at home you can put in your final your final 20th pick so we can round this up and you could be a part of the conversation so please let us know what films you would associate with any of these stages of life what you think of the smorgasbord films if you've had a chance to check them out and that's it from us so thank you so much for listening that was the k cut and now we are going into the l cut 